And take your Bible, turn over to Acts chapter 5. We'll get to 1 Peter today, but we're going to start Acts chapter 5. So we talk about blessing in the midst of suffering. Each and every one of us, none of us would want to choose suffering. Uh, persecution, opposition by our human choices, obviously. But the thing is that this book helps us prepare for those days, which I believe are coming at us. Some are already in some ways in our country being persecuted. And so this is a challenge as we go through this book to let First Peter seep into our soul and to take these truths and, and uh, put them in there uh, to know that when we face these times of trials and tribulations and suffering and opposition and persecution, that we'll have some things there built into our soul ready to respond. We'll get to Acts chapter 5 in just a moment, but I want to begin with a couple quotes as we think about blessings in the midst of suffering. Simon Wheel, a philosopher, said, The extreme greatness of Christianity lies in the fact that it does not seek a supernatural remedy for suffering, but a supernatural use for it. The next one is Leon Blois, a French Catholic writer. Man has places in his heart which did, do not yet exist, and into them suffering in order that, into them enter suffering in order that they may have existence. In other words, there's things that we have yet to learn until we go through the depths of difficulty and struggles in our life. Archbishop Charles Schaput says this suffering can bend and break us, but it also can break us open to become the persons God intended us to be. It depends on what we do with the pain. If we offer it back to God, he will use it to do great things in and through us because suffering is fertile. It can grow new life. This message talks in more detail than last week about the blessings we will be given and how to face those that oppose us for being Christ followers in a Christ-like manner. So you've turned in your Bible to Acts chapter 5. Look at verse 27. And later on in the message, after we read these verses, we'll come back to them and explain them more in depth. But in Acts 5, 27, it says, And when the disciples, or when the religious leaders had brought them, the disciples, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Skip down to verse 40 in your Bible. And when the religious leaders had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, the disciples did, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. And may God add his blessing at the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Fathers, we look into this passage in 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17 and other verses. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to have open hearts, open minds to what you want to teach us today. 
Let the word of God spill deep into our soul today. Let this not be just another Sunday, but that God, you would uh, help us to be ready and willing to hear you speak to our hearts and lives. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want us to see, as I read that passage there in Acts 5, to see from God's word an example of how some have responded to suffering. Do you consider it a privilege when someone slanders or reviles you because of your views that are either supported by scripture and you share that scripture or you share some values in the workplace or wherever that are supported by verses, but you don't necessarily proclaim those verses. People know where you stand on things and have you been persecuted for and do you consider yourself uh, worthy uh, to speak out and to accept the blame for his name? I know this isn't the norm, and I know this isn't something we seek out, but when times come and we share our biblical views on things with Scripture, people are going to, at times, point, oppose us. Point number one today is this, a passion for goodness. A passion for goodness. 1 Peter 3, turn over there if you would. 1 Peter 3, we'll give you a moment to do that. As we look at 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17, a passion for goodness. In verse 13 of 1 Peter 3, it says, Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? The first thing to think about is who should we fear? Who should we fear? I would say at this point, it's somewhat unusual that we as Christ followers are getting called out, slandered, and reviled for our faith because of the good we're doing in the workplace, in the community. But, and I say this with a big but, in a way that we are going to see the wagons circling more and more around the Christ followers, and the persecution will be coming soon in some form or manner to more and more people, and we need to be aware. Just look to the north in Canada. Here's an example. A Wall Street Journal article, June 29, 2021, says it's been a difficult summer for Canada's Christians. Over five days in late June, four Catholic churches and an Anglican church were burned to the ground. The first churches to be set ablaze or vandalized to begin a summer of such desecration. Suspicious fires then broke out across the country and all, at least 56 churches have been set ablaze, aflame or vandalized according to the True North Center, which is mapping attacks on churches. The article goes on to say that only one person had been arrested for uh, these uh, arson acts, but also the government itself, the Canadian government, hasn't said much or made a comment about these attacks on churches. We see in Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who will stumble and fall. We need to be reminded that we don't need to fear what man can do because God is on the throne. And if we're a follower of Christ, he's going to take care of us. In Matthew 10, 28, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's the person that we need to fear the most is the Lord and make sure that we honor and glorify him through all that we do. So on your outline, are you passionate for God's good? Are you passionate for God's good? What does it look like to be zealous or passionate for God's good? What does it mean? Well, zealous means to be intense or enthusiastic. And you know, in the, the group of the disciples that Jesus called out, there was one called 
Simon the Zealot. And the Zealot was a section of the Jewish group of people that believed that they were called to overthrow the Roman government and restore the rule to the Jewish people to be in control of that region. And they would go so far as even lie, cheat, and even assassinate. That's how zealous they were because they were strong in their beliefs about this truth. Well, good here is for us to live above reproach, not perfect lives, to be committed to do all that God wants us to do, minus the lying and the cheating and the assassination attempts, but to do what God wanted done for his kingdom and his glory. It's owning what we do when we do things wrong and asking for forgiveness and rectifying the, ma the matter. We are daily proving we are working to carry out the good works God has made for you and I. That's the whole purpose. And as we do those good works, then people see something different about our lives. In Ephesians 2.10, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You and I, we are unique masterpieces with our personality, with our spiritual gifts, with our talents. And God has put us in unique places to connect with people at this time in history. In other words, to, to do the good works that he has prepared for us so that we could point people to the Savior. So as we continue through this chapter, we're going to see that a godly lifestyle usually silences those most opposed to the gospel. Back in 1 Peter chapter 2, which we studied a while back, it says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That when it's all said and done, when judgment day comes and we stand there before God, they will proclaim the good works that we have done. What are some examples doing God's good and being persecuted for it potentially? Well, generosity to the wrong kinds of Christian organizations or charities that the world may decry. That may cause you some persecution. Being associated with organizations that do not fit with the world system's agenda. Remember, the world is man-centered and is all about the bettering of man, driven without the values many times we as Christ followers have. Ministering in the community in secular places where they find out you're a Christian and you take a stand for all that the Word of God says, you could be canceled out. On the other hand, we are to light a light no matter what. We should be involved in our school boards. We should be aware of what's being taught in our public and Christian schools. We should give back to our community by volunteering until we're not welcome anymore to do so. We're to get involved in local politics if God leads us to do that and shine the light of goodness there. We can encourage our police men and women, our firemen and women, our paramedics and our medical professionals. The application here is how do we protect our passion for God's good and not settle for less? That's a good question for us to ponder. Is there a line? Is there a place that you would stop following God because you might face opposition or persecution? And how do we protect our passion for God's good and not settle for less? Second of all, another blessing is that we understand a purpose for our suffering. A purpose for our suffering. When that comes upon us, when we're facing persecution and opposition, we find out, and God kind of pulls away all the dross and reveals to us what it's really all about, what's the baseline in our walk with Christ. In 1 Peter 3, 14, verse 14, it says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, 
you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled as holy. Skip down to verse 17, because these two verses go together very well. Verse 17 says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Here's a question. Are you willing to suffer for doing good? Are you willing to suffer for doing good? It's easy to say that. It's a different situation when you're in the foxhole and people are firing at you. But are you willing to suffer for doing good? A passionate life of a Christ follower produces a godly life, pure living, and a loss of appetite for the things that would distract him or her away from Christ. Christ was willing to quietly, without much of a response, accept the torture and the mockery of false trials and then be crucified, showing us an example of an innocent man being so severely mistreated. Acts 10.38 gives a little testimony here about Christ. It says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So it begs the question, if Jesus suffered, people attacking him verbally and physically, ostracizing him from the synagogues and other Jewish people, how will we escape the same displays of hatred at times? But even if the beginning of verse 13, it says there in the beginning of verse 13, but even if, even if we are mistreated for our faith, we are to suffer for righteousness' sake. That takes us back to our scripture reading. And in Acts chapter 5, you know the story about Ananias and Sapphira, and that's what begins that chapter, where Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit. And because of that, they are killed on the spot instantly. And it brought great fear to the people there in the church. Obviously it would, because they witnessed it firsthand. Then it goes on to talk about how uh, the disciples went out and they were in the temple by Solomon's porch and they were preaching the gospel and they were healing people and people were bringing people from the neighborhood in. The verses even say that some even wanted to just get their loved one under the shadow of Peter so that maybe they would be healed. Well, the religious leaders heard and saw this and saw the crowds growing. They came and they took the disciples and they arrested them, put them in prison and during the night, an angel came and released those disciples out. In the morning, they came and the guards were there and the doors were secured. They looked in and there was nobody in there. The disciples were gone. They were at the temple once again, preaching and sharing the gospel. So they went and they arrested them and they challenged them with what we read in the scripture reading. But here's the key in Acts chapter 5, verse 41 in this always gives me goosebumps to think about this. Then they left the presence of the council, the disciples did, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Are we willing to suffer, but then do we view it as a privilege to suffer for his name if we're doing it in the name of Christ? We'll be blessed to identify with Christ in our suffering. And once again, we see a similar promise that we saw in 1 Peter 3.9. Back to 1 Peter 3.14. Notice these phrases. Have no fear. Don't fear their fear. Is that, what it, is that exactly what it means? Don't fear the fear of man. It says, do not be troubled. Do not be shaken or stirred up. Peter is quoting here from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 through 14. 
And then I think about Joshua in Joshua chapter one after Moses had died and God says, okay, Joshua, you're now the leader. He said over and over numerous times in that chapter one of Joshua, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Courage is obedience and strength in the face of fear. We need to be reminded of that as well. Warren Wiersbe said this, our enemies may hurt us, but we can only harm ourselves if we fail to trust in God. The ultimate thing is that no one can really attack our soul, change our hearts and our minds, unless we allow it to happen to ourselves. Here's the next point. Are you willing to accept the consequences of suffering for doing wrong? That's a tough one. Are you willing to suffer and accept, I'm sorry, are you willing to accept the consequences of suffering for doing wrong? God talks about accepting discipline from the Lord for the wrongs we do or have done. And the goal is to make us holy through that discipline and cause us to repent and turn back to following God's will. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7, it says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Verse 11 of that same chapter, it says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I hope that when you face discipline or conviction of your sin, you realize that it's because a loving God is trying to bring you back in repentance to be right with him and to walk with him, to get you back on the path that he desires. That's the purpose of discipline. And remember, nothing happens to us that hasn't first gone through the hands of God and then passed on to us. It's all for his purpose and glory in our lives as we face these things with dignity and understanding. And sometimes it is God's will for us to suffer when we're doing the right things and in return we'll receive greater blessing. We may not see the blessings at the time, but if we endure with the right heart attitude, God will reveal his purpose and his blessing to us. So here's the application under this point. It's do we count it a privilege to suffer for Christ? That's a deep question for us to go home and ponder and think about. Do we count it a privilege to suffer for Christ? I'm not saying that we're looking for it. I'm not saying that in our humanity we... We seek it out, but when it occurs, are we willing to take the stand and consider it a privilege to suffer for Christ? Next, is your view of the Christian life something that's just a list of do's and don'ts, rules, or you're following a cause? Christianity must be much more than that for a person to endure and stay faithful to the end of their lives. You might want to circle this point and put a star beside it because this is probably the most important part of the message today. We need to have a passion in our relationship with Christ. 1 Peter 3.15 says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord. The question here, does Jesus sit on the throne of your life as Lord? How passionate are you currently in your love for Christ? How passionate are you? I hope he's more than a cause. I hope he's more than just trying to do the right things, hoping to get acceptance of love for him. I hope that you're in a strong love relationship with the Lord? Have you lost that first love? Have you lost that joy you experienced when you first became a believer in Christ? That joy does change in many ways over time, but becomes richer just like the depth of our love becomes 
richer as we serve the Lord. Jesus talked to the church in Ephesus and he said in Revelation chapter 2, as he warned these seven churches, the church of Ephesus had this warning, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Remember, we are to seek and to think about what it was like when we first became believers in Christ and the love and let that love continue to flow and grow in our lives. You've heard that saying, if Jesus isn't Lord of all areas of your life, he's not Lord at all. And I used to hear that over and over and over again. And I would rededicate my life. And then a few hours or days later or whatever, I would slip into sin once again. Making Jesus Lord of your life is an attitude. It's something you're striving for. It's something you're working toward. It's giving him a blank check for every area of your life to speak into it. It says in 1 Peter 3.15 in the New American Standard Bible, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Sanctify means to set apart, to make the sole object of your love, the sole object of your devotion, loyalty, and reverence. What do you and I revere and honor above Christ? Is it entertainment? Is it music? Is it our hobbies? Is it food? Is it fill in the blank? What is it? Does Jesus have permission to speak into the key areas of our lives? Our money choices. I've heard uh, pastors say that you could tell a person's spiritual walk with Christ by looking at their checkbook, by what they spend their money on and their priorities. Does Jesus have permission to speak into your entertainment choices, to your relationship choices, who your friends are, the media priorities and choices in your life? Does Jesus have a blank check and is he able to speak into your work, your church involvement, and other things that are part of your life? We have to continue to let the Holy Spirit permeate and have leadership in all areas of our life as we work toward Jesus being Lord daily of our lives. And then are we more committed to glorifying the Lord than pleasing man? Are we more committed to glorifying the Lord than pleasing man? or even pleasing ourselves. If you haven't already, many of you have, but we got younger people here as well, you're gonna face crossroads in your life. And you're gonna have to seek God to get direction for what he wants you to do. I remember when I was about to start my senior year in 1980, the fall of 1980, I had one, two semesters left, one year to graduate. And I got this summer job at UPS, and I loved that job. It was a part-time job. It paid extremely well and had fantastic benefits. And as we were coming up to August, I realized that there was one class in particular I needed to graduate, and it was only offered at 8 o'clock in the morning. And I would get off at UPS at 8.15. And it was a very hard decision, but I gave up that job because I wanted to graduate and continue to fall follow what God had called me to do. I remember when I was <clears throat> getting ready to graduate from graduate school and leaving a management position I was doing very well at and making good money for someone who was 24 years of age. I remember my dad sitting down with me and he was a businessman who later became a pastor and he said, do you really want to give up your business career to go into ministry? He challenged me on that and I did. I left that all behind to go and help plant a church in Conyers, Georgia. Sometimes when you stand at those crossroads and you have to realize, what is God telling you to do? What are you 
called ultimately to do. You see, people want to come to Christ with a list of conditions. The real question is this, is there a God who is the source of all beauty and glory in life, and if knowing Christ will fill your life with his goodness and power and joy, so you would live with him in endless ages with his life increasing in you every day? If that was true, wouldn't you be willing to give up things for him? Think about this. If you went to the doctor and your friend came with you and the doctor said, you know, you're going to pass away in a short amount of time, but I have a remedy for this problem. If you do these things and give up eating chocolate for the rest of your life, then you will be completely healed. And what if you turn to your friend and you say, hey, I, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to give up chocolate. I'm not going to do that because I want to eat chocolate. Do we put conditions on what God would have us to do in our life? If Christ is really God, then all the conditions go away. You say, Lord, I'm an open book. I'm a blank check. Speak to me. I will obey. There are no conditions anymore. So the application is this. Are you motivated to follow God no matter the consequences because of your love for Christ? That's a challenging thought. As we sit here and think about that, are we motivated to follow God no matter the consequences because of your love for Christ? Following Christ will cost you something. And how prepared are you if in the midst of doing good or suffering, someone asks you why you believe what you believe? What would you say? We have to be prepared. So another blessing that he gives us is a preparedness to defend our faith. A preparedness to defend our faith. 1 Peter 3.15, the second part of that verse says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So are you ready to share your faith story at a moment's notice, at the drop of a hat? If someone were to turn to you when you're standing in a line and they see, they see your shirt or something that reveals to them you're a Christian, and they would ask you, how do I become a Christian? What would you say? Notice in verse 15, the second part says, always be ready at any time. Prepared to share your faith story. And in your notes, I've given you three questions to think about. To maybe write out your testimony on some note cards if you've never done it. But can you share how you can, your life in Christ in two to five minutes? <clears throat> and that's a challenge that we should all live up to and know. And if it means looking at these questions and writing down a few sentences, say, what was my life like before I received Christ? Doesn't mean we go into all the gory details of our sin if we have that kind of a background. Maybe you grew up in the church and you came to faith in Christ. Our stories are all different. But what was life like? Then how did you come to Christ? To share the gospel, to share how you realized that you were a sinner that you're in need of a savior, that Jesus paid the price on the cross by dying and shedding his blood, and that by turning away from my sin and receiving what he did for me on the cross and rising again, I have the hope of eternal life because I've given him my heart and life and asked for forgiveness of sin. And then, how was your life changed after coming to faith in Christ? How was your life changed? How, uh, what is different about it? What do you see that's new and fresh because you're walking in the ways of Christ? So you're ready to share your faith story. We should be ready as this verse challenges us. And are you prepared to defend what you believe? Are you prepared to defend what you believe? The verse goes on to say that we need 
to not only be ready to share how we personally came to faith in Christ, but prepared to share why we believe and what we believe. And that brings us to, you know, that word defense, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But we need to know a little bit about why we believe. And some people look at that word apologetics, the defense of the faith, and there's so many voluminous uh, works out there that you could study. But here is a very basic one that every Christian should read. Know why you believe. A clear affirmation of the reasonableness of the Christian faith by Paul Little. Very short book, but give you some basic things to answer some basic questions that people may have about, you know, why do you believe the Bible's true? Why do you think Jesus is the Son of God and the only way to heaven? These are some great, there's some great things in here that would help you with those basic things that sometimes come up. So we see that word defense there in verse, 1 Peter 3.15. It's where we get our word apologetics, which means a defense of the faith. The Greek word for defend means someone who must defend himself or herself in a court of law, a reasoned and logical approach to the faith. Thomas Aquinas, he was a great Catholic monk who talked about a reasoned faith rather than just taking a leap of faith to believe in just what the Bible says alone. Some believers are okay with just looking into God's word, hearing the gospel, and believing, and then trusting in God. But there's a lot of people out there who want reasons and evidence for the faith even outside of the Bible. And so they ask good questions, and they want to know, what is the difference between Christianity and other religions, and so many things. And so we need to give a reason for the faith that's within us. There's lots of examples of that. Do you realize every archaeological dig that they've done in trying to find artifacts related to the Bible, it's just proven the Bible even more? Uh, not too many years ago, they found a plaque that said Caiaphas was the high priest at the time when Jesus was alive. Just one example. Think about all the prophecies. There's over 365 prophecies about Jesus. And everything that was supposed to occur up to this point has occurred, and still there's more to come in the future as we look at Revelation and the other prophecies as well. There's many things that we can point to, even outside the Bible, that show and prove the Bible and God's word and God is true. Philippians 1.16 says, the, Paul was talking about his defense of the gospel. He says, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. So to anyone who asks, in 1 Peter 3.15, to anyone who asks means using the right words of the gospel. And the attitude we need to portray here is not that of a prosecuting attorney trying to win a debate or a case, but he says we need to have an attitude that's loving, gentle, and respectful as we share our faith and share why we are a follower of Christ. The spirit of your defense of the faith may be more powerful than the words you use. Think about that. The attitude, the loving heart may be more powerful than the words you use to share and explain your faith. And you and I sharing our hearts in many times is the most persuasive thing we can do to help people understand that we've experienced this firsthand in our hearts and lives. It's hard to refute someone who's experienced something firsthand. The hope, we need to share the hope that's within us, it says. The hope is Christ. He is the hope of all the world and the salvation to all who want to receive it. Christians, we have the most hope of all because it's found 
and the person, the resurrected Christ, who points to God the Father as the one who is Lord over all. Sadly, many Christians are afraid to share their testimony. They feel unprepared and afraid they will get stumped on a question that they cannot answer. You know what? Just to share a little secret with you, after all the years of study and theology and everything else, guess what? I get stumped on a regular basis. And you know what I say to them? Okay, you go home and I'll go home and let's look this up together and let's do our own study and come back and let's see what we find out together. Many Christians are afraid because they feel like they're going to get stumped. It's going to happen, but you can find the answers. So here's the application. Are you willing to share your faith confidently with others even if they don't have all of, even if you don't have all the answers? Are you willing to share your faith confidently with others even if you don't have all the answers? Good challenge to think about, pray about this week. The last principle that's a blessing in the midst of suffering is this, is a pure conscience. A pure conscience. We have all these other four, but here's the pure conscience one, the last one. 1 Peter 3.16. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile, revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. The best way to have security in a hostile world is to have a pure conscience. John MacArthur defines a conscience this way. A conscience is a divinely placed mechanism that either accuses or excuses a person acting as a means of conviction or affirmation. Let me read that again. A conscience is a divinely placed mechanism that either accuses or excuses a person acting as a means of conviction or affirmation. Paul speaks about the conscience in Romans chapter 2, verse 14. In verse 15, he says, For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, instinctively perform the requirements of the law, these, though not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience testifying, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. It's kind of like if we have a clean window at our house, and uh, <clears throat> if we have a clean window of our soul at the same time, our conscience. And when we sin, it brings dirt on the window. And of course, dirt blocks out some of the light. Well, then what are we going to do? We have a, a conviction of our sin. We have to do something to clean our conscience. We have something to clean the window so the light of the Christ will come in more brightly and shine out through us. But if we don't deal with sin and sin continues to build up in our lives, it makes that window darker and darker and darker and less and less light can come in. The danger for some is they have seared their consciences. They've gotten to the place where they're not convicted or sense the right or wrong of their conscience. In Titus 1.15, it says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. We have a responsibility to make sure that our sin list is short and that we confess our sin and that we maintain that pure conscience. 1 Timothy 4.2 talks about the ultimate if someone allows their conscience to get seared to the greatest amount. It says, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. So why is it important to have a pure conscience? <clears throat> Here's a few things, and if you want to write them down and 
If we go by too fast, you can contact me and I'll be glad to send you a copy of this manuscript. But first of all, a pure conscience allows believers to be free from any burden of guilt. That's one of the greatest things about knowing Christ. I meet so many people that are in various religions, even uh, liberal Christian theology that don't have that sense of assurance of knowing they're going to heaven, and they live with a burden of guilt on their life. And with a pure conscience, believers can be free from the burden of guilt because Christ paid for our sins at the cross by shedding his blood. And then a pure conscience causes us to be uncomfortable until we deal with the conviction of our sin. That's one of the purposes of the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John, John 14, John 16. The Holy Spirit came to convict us and to touch our conscience and to let us know when we sin. A pure conscience is able to withstand the torment and stress of tribulations and continued persecution. We need that. We need that to know that we're doing what God wants us to do, even as we're facing opposition for what we believe. Number four, a pure conscience is free from false guilt and trying to always please others. That's another thing, is if we understand what a pure conscience is, then we can not allow Satan in the flesh to put that uh, false guilt into our lives and then to see that we need to please God alone. Number five, a pure conscience takes responsibility for our sin, confesses, and reconciles with others. We confess our sins to God, we confess our sins to others, and we make sure that we're right with them so we continue to maintain that pure and good conscience. And lastly, a pure conscience provides guilt-free living with peace and confidence in our Christian life. And I hope that that's one of the goals, one of the hopes that you have for your life, is you have a sense that you're walking in the spirit, walking with God, and your conscience is clear when you go to bed at night as you go through your day. The last point here is that will your conduct reflect your pure conscience so that those that oppose you will be silenced and put to shame? Conduct, pure, shame are the blanks. 1 Peter 3.16, the end of it says this, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Slander is evil speaking, verbal abuse. Revile means to threaten, to insult, or mistreat. And if Christ followers' conduct is consistently good, accusers will often be silenced. Sometimes we do have to stand and defend our name. Paul, when he was in the Philippian jail in Acts 16, and he was beaten and put in the stocks, and he was there, and then the next morning they were going to release him. He said, wait, I'm a Roman citizen. I was unjustly beaten and put in this prison I demand my rights, and there's times for that. But sometimes, sometimes we have to leave it up to God to defend our name. And that's what Jesus did when you think about it. When he went through the mockery of the trials, when he was tortured, beaten, and nailed to the cross, he just left it up and trusted to the one who is over all to bring about the proper justice. So be mindful that those who engage in sinful treatment of Christ's followers with the goal of destroying or shaming them will themselves, this verse says, be put to shame. So here's our application as we close today. Do you see the depth of value of having a pure conscience before God and man? Do you see the depth of value of having a pure conscience before God and man? That will give you a lot of confidence, a lot of peace as you 
live out your Christian life. And here's our key thought. To have the respect of those who oppose us, we must live with integrity, a life passionately devoted to Christ. We have to live that life. We have to be that light that shines, as it says in Matthew chapter 5. The light that shines, that we have a pure conscience with our fellow man and with God, and that the light of Christ will shine and flow through us. Here's two quotes as we close and we pray today. C.S. Lewis said this, God, who foresaw your tribulation, has specially armed you to go through it, not without pain, but without stain. Think about that. God, who foresaw your tribulation, has specially armed you to go through it, not without pain, but without stain. And this last one, I hope you really ponder this, because I spent a lot of time thinking and reflecting on this last night. Corey Ten Boom, who was in a German concentration camp, said this. When a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and you trust the engineer. When we're faced with suffering and darkness and trials and tribulations and uncertainty of what's going to happen, we need to trust the engineer. We need to trust God who's in control, who's sovereign over all the circumstances, who never lets anything come into our life that hasn't first passed through his hands. Let's bow for prayer. Father, help us as we look into our hearts and our lives, as we ponder these questions that we've laid out today that, are, that Peter is challenging us. <clears throat> and is Jesus really Lord of our life? Are there conditions that we've said this far and no more? And I pray today that whatever we're wrestling with in our hearts and lives, that you would speak, that you would help us to surrender those things, to surrender those over to you, Lord, and let you be in control. No matter what we face, no matter the circumstances, help us, Lord, to trust in you more than anything else. We pray and ask in Jesus' name, amen.